All right. Today, Acts chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, we are、uh, back in the book of Acts. Last week, we walked through Paul's recorded, first, first Paul's recorded sermon in the, in the city of Antioch. And Paul, in chapter 13, he spoke about how God has called Israel not only to bless them, the nation, But for them to be blessings to greater nation, and how an innocent man was hung on a tree, which is a significant reality for the Jews, for the sins of the world. And we talked about Jesus and how Paul preached this powerful message in chapter 13. And at the end of that sermon, verse 43, we are told that many repented, many Jews and non Jews, God fearing Gentiles, came to faith. And verse 44, following the, the Sabbath day, following Sabbath, Day, almost the whole town of Antioch came to hear Paul preach. But verse 45, but when some of the Jews saw how well Paul's message was received by the Jews and the non Jews, the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Jews became jealous and started to speak against Paul and his companions. And verse 46, they, and out of the persecution of the word against the gospel, Paul and his companions expand their ministry beyond the Jewish people. And verse 47,、uh, it says, God, For God has made them a light for the Gentiles so that they may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul reminds the Jews, Hey, God gave you all of these things, not so that you can just be blessed, blessing, but you can be the light to the Gentiles so that others will be able to come and see me. And, and we're told in chapter 13, end of chapter 13, the gospel spread in the region like a wildfire. So some of Again, high standing Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and his companions. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 14. We'll go verse 1 to verse 18. Acts chapter 14, verse 1 to verse 18. Let's read together. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city of Iconium were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, Talking about Paul and his companions, to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystria and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And th- there they continued to preach the gospel. Now in Ly- Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprung up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in their own language, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd, crying out, Men, 
Why are you doing these things? We are also men of the nature, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In post-generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hands, hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So now from uh, city of Antioch, they make their way to the city of Iconium. And they enter Iconium, a city that was an ancient city, a well-known city, a city that is nearly 100 miles southeast of the previous city of Antioch. Uh, it was a city that, was, that still is the Turkey's fourth large, largest town of Kalkonia to, to this day. And at the time, it was still a Greek city and its prominent city of agriculture and commerce. It was a city known for agriculture and commerce. At the time. So verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1, they, they arrive at this new city and they follow the same playbook, right? Just as they went to the Jewish synagogue to preach uh, in front of the Jewish crowd and God-fearing Gentiles, they do the same thing as they enter this new city. And some of the unbelieving Jews and many rulers and leaders hearing Paul's message, they stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their minds against the message of the gospel. That's what verse 2 tells us. Right Again, every time Paul and Barnabas, they're traveling, they're, they're going to the synagogue and sharing how Christ is connected to David, how they have been called to be blessings to other nations, there is this pushback from the Jews. And, and the question that we, we ought to be asking as we're reading through the book of Acts is why? Why did the Jews reject the message of the gospel? What's the reason for rejection? Many believed, but some rejected the the message. And we know from the time of Jesus, time of Jesus' ministry, Jews rejected because, not because they did not believe in the prophecy concerning a Savior, right? Many Jews believed that there would be a Savior. They rejected Jesus because they were anticipating a Messiah who would emerge as a political and military leader. That was their vision, that the Savior will come, and would lead this, their military against their oppressors, the Romans at the time. So when Jesus did not do that, when Jesus came with a far greater vision for humanity to, to set people free from their bondage of sin, shame, and eternal damnation, when Jesus did not pick up the sword or shield or start this revolt against the, the Roman Empire, people were not willing to, to believe in this Messiah. They rejected this Messiah. Paul tells us later in his letter that this had become a stumbling block for many. That the fact that Jesus looked very different from the Savior that they anticipated. To put it simply, why did they reject Jesus? Why did these Jews in our story reject Jesus? Because Jesus did not fit in to their own perceived notion of what it means to be a God or Savior. Last week, I I briefly touched on this. Right, this idea of rejecting the notion of who we think God is. See, when we come to faith, when all of us, when we came to faith, none of us have a true picture, the full picture of who Christ is. 
I remember coming to faith at age 14. I just knew I did not want to go to hell, right? That, that was the Asian retreat speaker's message. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to believe in this Jesus. I don't know much about him, but I will believe in Jesus. And, and many of us come to Christ in different ways, and as we read scripture and are in community, we learn more about who Christ is and how he is like. But we all have our own understanding of our, our own version of who Jesus is, like the, the very famous teacher, Jesus is my homeboy, very famous, sort of, if you grew up in the 90s, that was 2000, that was this idea, hey, Jesus is cool, Jesus is my homeboy, right, or, or Jesus is very, we have different ideas of who Jesus is. I shared last week how my five-year-old daughter, my second daughter, uh, she loves the idea of Jesus who loves Kokomon. Kokomon's like a kid's show. Is Kokomon Korean? I don't, I don't even know. Kokomon's like this kid's show, and she's like, oh, Jesus loves Kokomon. I'm like, how do you know Jesus loves Kokomon? I was watching Kokomon before I came to earth to join you guys. I was with Jesus, which is probably not true, but, uh, but maybe. And over the years, I've met my share of those who grew up in the church, came to faith, but no longer identify themselves as Christians. I'm sure you guys have as well, talking to a co-worker, someone, a family member, you know, who once believed and you talk to him now, they say, I, I don't identify myself as Christian anymore. And everyone's journey is deeply unique and intricate and personal. I don't mean to summarize everyone, everyone who left faith into one category of why they left. But when I, when I, every time someone tells me they're no longer Christian, I am always interested, right? I'm always interested in why. Part of what I do is helping people to know Jesus better. The fact that these people were once believers and they're no longer, I'm, I always probe and ask and want to hear why. <clears throat> and what I, one common thread I often find for many of them, not everybody, but many of them who, have, who were once in Christ and no longer identify themselves as Christians, I find that they struggle to believe in a God who doesn't align with their evolving worldview or their understanding of the world. I remember I had many friends, youth group, college, who love Jesus, no longer walking with Jesus. And whenever I talk to them, it's, hey, my worldview has evolved. My understanding of God and what I think God should be, loving, just, benevolent God, no longer fits into the God of the Bible. Notion of what a loving, just, or benevolent God doesn't fit into what they believe. And this isn't anything new. When you study church history, Augustine, St. Augustine in the 4th century grippled with this same challenge. He saw many people struggling with their perception of who God is and wanting to desire to know God fully. And, he's, and, and, and he, he, he wrote um, many works. And one thing he said about the struggle, people wanting to fully know God and fully understand God, he says this, and I'll quote, it's on the screen. He says, God is not what you imagine or what you think you understand. If you understood, you have failed. Again, God is not what you imagine or what you think you understand. Augustine says, if you understand you have failed. So what Augustine is trying to help us unpack is this idea 
that God's full nature, full essence, attributes are beyond our human comprehension. He's saying, attempting to fully grasp and, 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 and sort of summarize and, and, and take in who God is fully, that idea is inherently flawed. That idea, oh, we can truly understand God, we can truly get who, who God is like. If you, if, if you pursue that, he's saying that desire itself is flawed. Because human language concepts and frameworks really fall short of comprehending the full divine reality of who God is. This means when we contemplate our understanding of God, when we think about who God is, we must do so with a profound sense of reverence and humility and all. Not to be like, oh, I, know, I know all of God, but really this sense of, God, I don't know all of you, but I know what you have revealed yourself to me. In C.S. Lewis's beloved timeless series, The Chronicles of Narnia, said in the enchanting, enchanting world of Narnia, there's a profound Christian allegory woven through the story. If you, as, as, as kids, adults, read this series by C.S. Lewis, there's a profound Christian allegory woven throughout the series. In a particular scene in the story, one of the books, the children Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy learn about this ruler of the land of Narnia called Aslan. The lion figure who apparently is the ruler. No battery? Okay, maybe not. Okay, I'm good. So, so in, in, the, in this particular scene, they ask, these children ask one of the characters in the land, someone who knows this king, whether this king Aslan is safe. Is he safe to be with? And Mr. Beaver, the one who's answering the question, and, he, and, and the quote is on the screen, he says, safe, this is his response, safe, said Mr. Beaver, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The distinction between, so what C.S. Lewis is trying to help us unpack through this series is the distinction between safety and goodness is one of the central themes of the story. Characters, these children must learn to trust in this, this Aslan character's wisdom and goodness, even when, he ways seem, even when his ways may appear unpredictable or challenging. You may follow Jesus. Okay, I, need a, I, need a, I think I might need a new mic. Can you help me, Jay? All right. In following Jesus, in the same way these children have to come to the term with yeah, he's not saved, but he's good. And in many ways, the, when we pursue, when we desire to follow Jesus, it will also be met with similar challenges that following Jesus won't always make sense or we won't be able to comprehend everything about God or what he is doing. And it's only human, right? When you think about it, it's only human nature to want a creator who can, who can be fully known. Also, a, a creator who is safe to be with. That's, that's the desire. When we think about our image of God, we want someone who we can know and who we know is safe. Yet, throughout the scripture and what we learn about Jesus, Jesus is not safe in the sense of predictability or absence of danger. Because when you read the book of Acts, Paul is getting stoned left and right. 
by, by preaching the gospel. There's nothing safe about the journey that Paul and Barnabas is on. And we'll read very soon, Paul's going to face one of these things in the city. But Paul, Barnabas, and, and, and the scripture reveals God who is unquestionably good. And he may not always shield you and I from challenges, trials of life and difficulties, but he will unfailingly guide us in accordance with his own purpose and will. And again, that's the story of the book of Acts. That's where Paul and Barnabas find themselves in. Not a safe place, but trusting that God is good. So verse 3 to 6, now we're moving through the story. Paul and Barnabas stayed on in the city of Iconium as long as they can, even though there was great persecution and these rulers poisoned the mind of, of, of Gentiles. They stayed as long as they can, discipling, helping people understand who Christ is. But upon hearing the plot of the Jews to stone him, Paul, and Barnabas, they, they move once again. In verse 8, they come to a town that's not too far from Iconium, a, t- a much smaller, insignificant town of Lystra. And what's really interesting is verse 8, Paul's in this new city, and for the first time, he doesn't look for a synagogue. If you look at verse 8, he's not in a synagogue anymore. He's not looking for just Jews to be able to preach. He's on the streets, preaching the message of the gospel, both to the Jews and anyone who wants to hear it. Paul's preaching. And as he's preaching, he notices a man who had been crippled from the birth. That's what Luke tells us. There's a man sitting who's been crippled from birth. Paul, while he's preaching, looks intently at this man, sitting, attentively listening to the message that Paul is sharing. But Paul sees something much more profound about this man. It's not simply he sees that his disability, but his ability. What's the ability that Paul sees? Ability for this man to put his trust in God and he can actually be healed. Luke tells us, Paul sees this man, and he saw that this man had faith to be healed. So looking intently at him, Paul says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. But just step, step, step aside real quick. Just, just imagine this scene with me. Paul is in a, in a new city. He's just escaped this crowd, this angry mob wanting to kill him, Paul and Barnabas and their companions. He's in a new city, in the streets. The crowds of crowds of people have come to hear him. They've, they've come to not see his miracles. They've come to hear him preach because they've heard. And he's preaching and Paul could just simply preach. Right? By, by pointing to this man in front of the whole crowd and, and the scripture says he said it loudly, get up, stand up. Imagine, there are, Paul is risking everything, right? his reputation, opportunity to present the gospel. But deep down inside, Paul recognized, man, Holy Spirit said something to me. Even though Luke doesn't go deep into it, it's really Holy Spirit telling Paul, Paul, do you trust me to tell this man? Because Paul didn't have to do anything. Paul could have just said, because often, it is my confession to you guys as I go about my week. And I've, I've shared my stories of, you know, just profoundly dumb things that I do as, as a pastor and, and not hearing Holy Spirit and obeying Holy Spirit. God speaks to us. God speaks to me. 
Tell me, why don't you go pull over and talk to this person? I'm like, God, I don't, they don't know me. I don't know them. I'm not going to pull over and just talk to this person. Tell me, why don't you do something nice for this parking lot issue? I'm like, it's awkward. I, I'm busy. We have all these excuses. And, and, and really, not in so dramatic way, we all have moments as we, as we follow Jesus and go to our workplace at home, wherever we go, at the gym, we have opportunity because God is speaking to us. As you're teaching your kids, God is speaking to you. Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And we all have a choice. And Paul, very clearly, he had a choice. And he had every reason to be like, Lord, I I, got to preach this. I, I, I can't do this. But Paul, out of faith, it was not safe. This was not a safe environment. Imagine if Paul said, get up, and the guy's like, no, I'm not standing up. It's like, okay, we've got to go to the next town because this is not going to work. Imagine. But again, because Paul trusted in the voice of the Holy Spirit and, and trusted that God is going to do something good out of this situation, he stops his preaching and says, get up. Again, God is not safe to be with. There's nothing that feels safe about what Holy Spirit is asking Paul to do in our text, yet we know, yet Paul knows that God is good, so he does it. And so upon Paul's words, Paul looks at him and says, get up. This man indeed does get up, and he leaps for joy. And and there's this beautiful healing that takes place because Paul is willing to obey. So the challenge for us from from this text is, are we willing to obey? In our busyness, in our own sort of life, with our own sort of schedule, with all the things, are we willing to obey that small voice that says, slow down? Speak to this person. Encourage that person. Ask them how they're doing. Get out of your own head of your own pain and struggle. Why don't you ask how other people are doing? And there's this beautiful obedience that Paul shows us again. Not safe, but good because God's purpose is good and he heals this man. And obviously the crowd goes crazy, right? Seeing this man who they saw every day on the streets begging for a little money, he's healed. And so verse 11, obviously this shook the whole town and so it gets really interesting now. Verse 11, the the people go crazy and in, they say in their own language, verse 11, the gods have come down to us in likeness of men. They assume Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, right? These Greek gods. They, 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 so one thing that you have to know about city of Iconium, they had this, they believed this Lystra, not Iconium, Lystra. They, they, it was a well-known local legend for this particular region in this area. This legend recounts a visit of Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes. There's this story that was handed, handed down generations and generations. And the story goes, this legend goes, that one of these, one day, these gods showed up to this town disguised as men. And, 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 and one of the things that they, they did was they wanted to see who would be able to host them. They, this was a, them testing the people of the town who is going to host us and treat us well. And out of all the places they visited, there was only one elderly couple that offered them hospitality. And as the legend goes, these, after the visit, both Zeus and Hermes, 
They rewarded the couple by sparing their home, but they set the rest of the town ablaze. It's a tragic story. So, so people grew up hearing this story, this narrative about God's visiting them. So when Paul and Barnabas does this amazing miracle, they're just they're shocked. They're like, okay, we gotta get we gotta get everything together because Zeus and Hermes is here, and they're terrified. So out of fear, they bring oxen and garlands to the gates as, as offering, thinking Zeus and Hermes have come back. And Paul and Barnabas, they're totally unaware of what's going on because this is all being done in their language. And Paul and Barnabas doesn't understand. They're like excited. Wow, people are responding. People are coming to hear the gospel. And then soon they realize, they, they assume that they were the gods. And, and so... It's only when townsfolks bring out large oxen for sacrifice, they finally get the wind of what's really going on. And, and so Paul and Barnabas, they don't know what to do. They're like terrified. These people think we're gods. So they, they run out of the streets and they tear their clothes, their garments, one, to show that we are flesh and blood, right? To show them, hey, I got skin. This, this, is, not, this is not God material. This is human material. But the two... In Jewish tradition, when you tear off your clothes, it's a, it's a sign of blasphemy. It's a sign to reveal that, hey, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no God. This is totally against worship of God. And, and, and he, they cry out, men, why are you doing these things? Why are you bringing these sacrifices and these offerings as if we are gods? For we are men of like, of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And given our limited time, because I only got maybe five more minutes, I'll keep this brief, this point brief, but it is essential to understand that what this, one of the truths that we could glean from this story is to understand that in our service to God, when we serve God, we must be very clear about who we are not. And I think that's what Paul and Barnabas does in our story. In fact, this is one of the most destructive pitfalls of many Christian leaders. If you think about American Christian history, Korean Christian history, I think this is one of the most destructive traits when leaders forget their place, forget that they're not actually God. Whether they're pastors, elders, worship leaders, teachers, teachers we really got to be careful. Um, you know, there are many conversations about what's happening with the Korean church. So much, so many people have left the Korean church. A large percentage of Christians choose not to go to church, but they, are, they claim themselves to be Christian. All this conversation. And every time scholars and pastors and professors get together, one of the main things they talk about is it's about leadership. It's about arrogant uh, lead, leadership in the, Christ, in, the, in the Christian church. And I think that's too much far, far off from what's happening in North America as well. A few years ago, I had a chance to sit down with um, this, this pastor that I really, really admired. He was a writer, author. His name is Pastor Daryl Johnson. We invited him, and I was serving at another church. We were inviting him to guest speak, and I got the chance to host him. Like, I, was like, I was like this kid just, just nerding out, because like, really, I read his books, and I read his stuff, and I had like the whole day with him. So we sit down, Starbucks, I think it's like Sachoyok by such a station. I was showing him like Sarang Church and like uh, different places. And um, he was just like, Sangmin, ask me. I'm like, 
okay, ask anything. He's like, ask me anything. I'm just like, okay, I gotta, I can't just ask like nerdy questions. I gotta ask something profound. So I think, I think, I think, okay. I go past Daryl. Um, who's, who, he's been in mission for 40 years. He's a missionary, pastor, writer, well-respected. He's not canceled, which, which, which is, you know, hard, right, to finish well. So I ask him, if you could do ministry all over again, what would you do differently? Like, if you were me, if you were like 30, and if you were to go back to your, your 30-year-old self, what would you tell your 30-year-old self to do something differently? Without even thinking about it, he's, he, it was like, I know the answer. He's like, boom. He said, there are a few things, but one thing I know for sure. And he says, if I could do ministry all over again, mind you, he's like 65, about to retire. If I were to do ministry all over again, I would follow the lead of John the Baptist better. He said, over the years, John the Baptist has become a great model, for, model of ministry for him. And he looks at me, he's like, now he's like in, he's in his zone. He says, you see, John the Baptist was very clear about who he was not. In fact, the Gospel of John, the beginning part, leaders of Jerusalem come, right? Because everyone wants to hear this weird dude teach and talk about what's happening, right? Because John the Baptist was doing ministry. At the, at the height of his ministry, people come and they ask, who are you? And John the Baptist, the first answer that he gives is not trying to explain himself. He, he, right off the bat, he says who he is not. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not the healer. I am not the fixer. I'm not the message. I'm simply a messenger. And, and, and Pastor Darrell goes on to say, you know, Simon, expectations around ministry and life are so huge and mostly unrealistic it's easy to fall into the trap of trying to live up to all of it. So he's like, always remember. Right? He's like, always remember, you're not the Savior. People may want to treat you like a Savior at times. You're not the healer. People may come to you and expect you to solve their problem, but you're not. You're not even the message. In fact, you're, he's like, time will fly. He's like, I'm 65, and I'm, I don't know where the time go. And God will continue to raise up different people. You're simply one of the messengers. And that was the best advice I've, I've gotten in, in, in 20 years of ministry. Someone tell me, be very clear about who you're not. And so just as you're serving, as you are serving at this capacity or a different capacity, just remember who you are not because it is so easy, right? I know I am not immune to this. No one is immune to this. As we draw our time to a close, as I promised, we're, we're done. Look with me in verse 11. I want to land us there. It delivers a profound declaration. Gods have come down in human form. Gods have come down to us in likeness of men. The people of Lystra, in their limited understanding, unwillingly acknowledge a truth that lies at the heart of the gospel message. Repeat myself. The people of Lystra, they assume Paul and, and Barnabas were these gods, in their limited understanding, unwittingly acknowledge a truth that lies at the heart of the gospel message. Gods have come down to us in likeness of men. 
It's not about Zeus. It's not about Hermes. But about someone else who entered our world, not in mere disguise, but in complete humanity. Apostle Paul, the same guy who's preaching in our text, he writes later to church in Philippi in chapter 2. He says, he he encapsulates this beautifully, this idea of God coming in human form. He says, Christ Jesus, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant born in likeness of men. And unlike Zeus and any other gods, he did not come to test whether people deserve to be spared. He came because Jesus knew we were headed for utter destruction. He came to demonstrate love in its purest form, taking upon himself the very punishment that humanity deserves. So Paul continues in that letter of Philippians chapter 2. He says, Therefore God, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the vision of Savior that Paul continues to remind us. He is not safe. Your life will not always be safe. You're not, your life will not always be without trials and challenges and, and difficulties, but you have a Savior who in his goodness, in his good purpose, will carry you through. And there's no reason for us to doubt because what Christ has already done for us. And I love that, that these people had no idea what they're saying, but they were declaring the essence of what it means that Jesus came for us. Amen? Let's pray together. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for our time together, Lord. We thank you for this reminder that although we want a creator that's safe, a savior that's safe, you've given us Savior, that is good. And Lord, as each of us live our lives to speak, help us to be aware of the voice of the Spirit that that guide us, that lead us, that challenge us, that comfort us. And Lord, remind us once again this wonderful reality of the gospel. Savior, that would that is willing to lay down his own life for us. Would you teach us to submit our frustration, our questions, our complaints, all of those things under the reality of who you are. Thank you for this reminder. Just let me pray.